What do disabled people want non-disabled people to know? If you lived your whole entire life in a body like mine, and all anybody ever wanted to tell you was that they didn't see you as having that body, and oh no, we shouldn't talk about having that body, and no, we shouldn't even think about acknowledging that you have a disabled body, you just have special needs, you're just differently able. What that sounds an awful lot like is telling people that they don't have their existence. And so I, I don't have special needs. I do not need a unicorn to follow me around all the time. What, what I need are accommodations like large print menus and having a QR code at the restaurant instead of having a paper menu. These aren't special needs. These are reasonable accommodations that help people exist. That's Elsa Hunnison. We talk with her about life as a deaf-blind person and the rights every disabled person should have. Her book is Being Seen, One Deaf-Blind Woman's Fight to End Ableism. Then, a cozy and comforting way to train your brain into better sleep. We can only make ourselves do stuff we don't like for so long. So when we're looking at habit building around sleep hygiene, if it can be pleasant, something you look forward to, you're going to be so much more likely to do it. Um, so th those are the major arenas I work in, is thinking about how can I shift your brain mode, give it something to, um, pleasant to focus on, and uh, how can I make it something that you'll want to come back and do again tomorrow? That's Catherine Nikolai. Later in the show, we talk with her about her book of stories for better sleep, Nothing Much Happens. It's based on her wildly successful podcast of the same name. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. And hey, do you know you can go to writersvoice.net to find extra content with links, book excerpts, and extended interviews. Disability rights are human rights. Yet, how often does our society actually acknowledge, much less honor, that frame? The truth is, despite the Americans with Disabilities Act, our society isn't set up to meet the needs of disabled people. Not by a long shot. Elsa Hunnison has been contending with that reality for a very long time. As a deaf-blind woman with partial vision in one eye and bilateral hearing aids, she lives at the crossroads of blindness and sight, hearing and deafness, much to the confusion of the world around her. While she can't see well enough to get around without a guide dog or cane, she can see enough to know when someone is reacting to the visible signs of her blindness and can hear when they're whispering behind her back. And she certainly knows how wrong our one-size-fits-all definitions of disability can be. Her book, Being Seen, explores what it means to be disabled in America, how disabled people are portrayed in the media, and why ignoring their needs damages us all. Elsa Hunnison is a disability rights activist, a media studies professor, and a writer. She's written extensively on issues relating to disability and representation in the media. She also writes speculative fiction and has been a Hugo Award finalist seven times. Elsa Hunasan, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you so much for having me. 
this memoir being seen is such a powerful story of what it's like to live as a disabled person in an ableist world. You really situate this book within a systems analysis of what it's like to live in this world. You tell your personal story to great detail, but your focus is not on inspiration, as you say. It's on talking about what it's like to live in a world that's not set up for somebody like yourself. Absolutely. I think that uh, ableism is a system, and I think that systemic isms are the problem that underpins most of the issues that we have as a society. And you talk about disabled systems theory. Tell us what that is. So there are multiple ways of talking about disability. I talk about a lot of different theories of disability. Um, there are different ways of talking about disability. So I use identity-first language, which means that I refer to myself as a disabled person or a blind person or a deaf-blind person. I don't refer to myself as a person with blindness or a person with a disability. And that's person-first language. Um, disability systems theory is a little bit more complicated and it sort of talks about the ways in which that disability exists within systems. So we as a society are a system, and the way that disability is situated within this system is as a disadvantage rather than as an advantage. The other piece to all of this, of course, is the lens that we use to view disability. Most people are looking at disability through a medical lens. The idea that the thing that has happened to your body makes it wrong. Whereas I come at it from a social disability perspective, which is to say that being disabled is not the problem. The problem is the system around you that hasn't built itself for your experience. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in the book, you also, you tackle the, the issue not just systemically, but also from the point of view of cultural tropes about disabled people that make life way more difficult than it has to be. So before we dive into systems thinking about this and those tropes, tell us a little bit more about yourself. You have, it's called congenital rubella syndrome, is that correct? That's correct. So I have congenital rubella syndrome. I've had it since I was a baby. Um, actually, before I was a baby because CRS starts in utero. Um, so CRS has a cl classic trifecta, blindness, deafness, and heart defects. I have all three. And I have had this body since birth. Um, that hasn't particularly stopped me from doing very much, uh, but it is the body that I live with, and that means that I adapt to things a little bit differently from a non-disabled person. I mean, when you say it hasn't stopped you from doing very much, uh, you've uh, done a whole lot of amazing things, I mean, including some things that are, let's say, not exactly traditional, uh, like being a burlesque dancer. Is that right? Yeah, I did burlesque in my 20s. Um, that was something that I was a part of that community for, in part because my mom was a burlesque performer. And so it was a community that I was already involved in. Could you say a little bit more about that? I, I sure. didn't even know there was a community like that. Yeah, I mean, the burlesque community is pretty big. Like it's it, like any group that has a common interest, there is a community within it. And so I grew up surrounded by burlesque performers and drag performers. And um, so when I was in my early 20s and I was studying the history of burlesque as an academic, it actually felt really important to participate in the art form in order to learn from it. Because 
it's not something where you can sort of write about it and not experience what it's actually like. So I went to a lot of shows. I also performed in some shows. And yeah, it's certainly a part of my history. Now, I can imagine that some of our listeners right now as they're hearing this are saying to themselves, well, if Elsa Honison is deafblind, what does that mean? So tell us what it means in your case. Sure. Well, deafblindness is like every other disability on a spectrum. Disabilities are not monolithic. That's one of the uh, myths that I've been trying to debunk within the book. Because for most people, if you look around and you see a disabled person, you assume that their body works a very specific way. And if it doesn't work the way that you think it does, then you don't think they're disabled. So here's some facts I can tell you. Of the millions and billions of disabled people in the world who have a blindness disability, only 10% of the blind population experiences what we call no light perception blindness. What that means, they see absolutely nothing. The rest of the blind population has some form of sight, and that's on a sliding scale. It's anywhere from a pinpoint where they see a very tiny fraction of the world through their eye, limited periphery, which is one of the kinds of blindness that I experience, uh, seeing shadows, seeing sh some light, only seeing out of half of your eye. There are multiple different ways to be blind. And so when you're deafblind, that means that you're not on just one sliding scale, but you're on two, because you're also on the sliding scale of deafness. So a deafblind person isn't completely blind and completely deaf and doesn't speak. That's a myth that's been perpetuated by the story of Helen Keller. If you're deafblind, it means that your body contains two separate disabilities, and the experience of those two disabilities together is what makes deafblindness. You mentioned Helen Keller, and I'd like to get back to her uh, because you have a, a really powerful critique of how she was received, how she was written about. But I want to stick with how things are for you and your body and how you adapt just for a little bit more. Uh, you write that you've learned how to survive in a body that was, was not intended for the world you live in, and you depend on your adaptive aids. Give us a sense of what those aids are and what they mean for you. Well, um, when you are living in a disabled body like mine, the, the world was not built to sort of sustain or support your existence. So I am living in a body that doesn't see well enough to read a street sign, which means that if I want to get places, I need to find other methods of getting around. I do. Um, this is part of why I'm glad I live in the era of cell phones and Google Maps, because I don't have to worry about whether or not I can see a street sign, I just have to worry about whether or not I have enough GPS to access the street signs around me. And those are two very different things. Um, I use a white cane. It helps me navigate when it's dark. It helps me navigate when it's too bright and I need to wear sunglasses. Um, a white cane helps me understand what kind of space I occupy. But those are some of the ways that I navigate. I also wear hearing aids, and uh, those are a really important part of my adaptation. And you you say that when COVID happened, all of your adaptive aids failed in the span of four weeks. What happened? Well, my hearing aid, the left hearing aid that I wear lost the receiver inside of my ear canal. And so I had to, I wasn't able to wear a hearing aid and I couldn't get in to see anyone because none of the offices were opening. 
And so I wasn't wearing my hearing aids. My white cane was broken and I couldn't get a replacement and my guide dog sprained his ankle. And so I was I was left without any adaptive aids at a time when everyone was wearing masks. And so I couldn't hear what people were saying through the plexiglass window at the grocery store. You know, it like it just it changed my whole existence to be living in this time when for everybody it was complicated, but for me it became extra complicated because I couldn't get the support I needed to do what I needed to do. You know, I was really struck as I read this book being seen, I'd say probably in the first chapter or second chapter, you tackle the trope of the inspirational memoir of the disabled person. And you say that, you know, if you're inspiring anyone with this book, it's not doing what you intended to. So talk about that trope and what is wrong with it? Well, so many of these disability memoirs that that sort of play on sympathy or on inspiration are asking you to examine a disabled life as life is remarkable. And what that says is that so often non-disabled people can't imagine a disabled person doing anything. So a disabled person doing something like climbing Everest becomes more remarkable and therefore we have to talk about it like it's a super heroic moment and disabled people just want to live their lives so if if someone looks at this book and says oh she went to graduate school i'm non-disabled and i never went to graduate school i should do that because if she can do it then i can well what you're saying is disabled people aren't just as good as you are and if they can do it then so should you so I don't want people to look at my life and decide that they have to do things that I've done or that it inspires them because clearly if I can do it, they can. I want people to actually learn to trust their own bodies. And that means that you know the limitations of what you want to do or what you can do. And I know the limitations of what I want to do and can do. And so I don't drive a car. I don't choose to do that. I shouldn't drive a car, although I did for the book. But The idea here is listening to what your actual body instincts are is what you should do. You shouldn't look at somebody else and say, I can do that if they can. And isn't that also a lesson that we can all take to heart? Absolutely. This is something I teach my kids. My, My children are like, well, my sibling does this, so I should be able to do it. My response is you're four and your sibling is seven. And you literally aren't able to do the same things, and that has to be okay. And talking about kids, uh, one of the tropes you talk about in the book is that disabled people aren't supposed to have kids. I mean, that's kind of bizarre. Where does that come from? Well, I think that that comes from a fundamental mistrust of disabled people. And there's also this assumption that we shouldn't have more disabled people. So for a lot of a lot of conversations I've had about parenthood, people will say, oh, well, you shouldn't have biological children, because then they would be disabled like you are. And first of all, that assumes that someone's disability is uh, heritable. And second of all, it assumes that disability is a bad thing and should be passed on. And so a lot of disabled people are encouraged by their doctors not to have children. A lot of disabled people are encouraged to seek out uh, voluntary sterilization. And it's really important to recognize that disabled people actually deserve to have children if they want to, and also can be really great parents. The disabled parents that I know are amazing people. 
And so these assumptions come from saying that disabled people can't take care of other people because they need help or can't be parents because they don't want, they shouldn't pass on their disabilities. So that's a lot of where it comes from. Now, your parents were different as well, but not disabled. They were queer. Did being different from society, I mean, I'm not sure, when, when were you born, or at least what decade, roughly? I was born in the 1980s. Okay. So in the 1980s, that was a time when, when there was a lot less acceptance of being queer than there is now. And of course, we're, there's, we're going backwards on that uh, track. Did being different in a society that looked at queer people suspiciously make them less ableist toward you? No, it didn't. I, my family, how do I put this? My family suffered from ableism in the same way that everybody else suffered from ableism. And that is something that we've had to work on and conquer uh, as a family, which has not always been popular. But ableism still was a part of my upbringing, for sure. And I don't think that I don't think it's fair to say that um, queer people might be less ableist, because to be honest, some of the most difficult ableism I've faced has been as part of the queer community, where a lot of events are inaccessible and uh, are unwelcoming to disabled people. Can you just say a little bit more about how you worked through some of those issues with your parents? I mean, well, my father passed away in 1993, so I never had the opportunity to work through that. Then. But with my grandmother, who I think it's fair to speak about since she passed this last year, um, I really had to have conversations with her where I would push back and I would say, actually, no, it's not okay to say derogatory things about other disabled people. Uh, she would make a lot of comments about how I was better than other disabled people because I could do things a certain way. And I would have to push back and say, no, that's actually not how that works. Like, you don't get to compare me to other disabled people. You don't get to compare me to other able people. You just get to have me as me. And that was something we really struggled with. Um, and there was also just teaching my grandmother not to use ableist language, which was a challenge on its own. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Elsa Hunnison about her memoir, Being Seen, One Deaf-Blind Woman's Fight to End Ableism. Oh, and define ableism then for us. You know, I, I think there was a time when you weren't supposed to say disabled. You were supposed to say differently abled. So could you talk a little bit about terminology or ableism and why disabled is okay to use and you know uh, you know just clarify that those kinds of linguistic issues sure so so ableism is the the ism for disability it is like racism or sexism the systemic ex ex existence of dislike hatred and rejection of disability and a lot of the language that people were encouraged to use in the 90s is ableist. And the reason why is because it tries to move away from acknowledging disability. And I want people to think about it this way. If you lived your whole entire life in a body like mine, and all anybody ever wanted to tell you was that they didn't see you as having that body, and oh no, we shouldn't talk about having that body, and no, we shouldn't even think about acknowledging that you have a disabled body, you just have special needs. You're just differently able. What that sounds an awful lot like is telling people that they don't have their existence or their experience. And so 
I, I don't have special needs. I do not need a unicorn to follow me around all the time. What, what I need are accommodations like large print menus and the ability to read information and having a QR code at the restaurant instead of having a paper menu. These aren't special needs. These are reasonable accommodations that help people exist. So that's part of why there's been a pushback against language like special needs and differently able and handy capable, because all of it tries to avoid talking about the disabled experience explicitly. It's almost like, you know, how people, some people say, oh, I don't see color. Yeah, I, I try not to make comparisons, but I think that that's a fair one to just say, like, when you say I don't see color, you're denying that person's experience. When you say I don't see your disability, you're denying that person's lived experience. So let's talk a little bit about Helen Keller. Um, I remember when I was a kid, she was she was a kind of icon uh, to me. But you have a really savage critique here of William Gibson's Miracle Worker, which is how so many of us got to know about Helen Keller, including myself. He wrote a book and, and there was a play and then a movie about, about it. What is the problem with William Gibson's treatment of Helen Keller? William Gibson doesn't center Helen Keller at the center of her own story. William Gibson wrote a play where every single person in the play is talking about Helen, but she doesn't have her own voice. And the truth is, is that Helen Keller had a voice. She was able to communicate with her family before Annie Sullivan showed up. She had her own home sign language, which her family understood. And suggesting that Helen Keller couldn't communicate and couldn't interact with her family suggests that she was outside of the world until she was brought in by someone. It's a savior narrative. And that's not fair to Helen Keller's legacy. So yeah, I have a pretty strong critique for William Gibson because I think he took someone's voice away and I'm not willing to sit by and let that continue. Um, for more on my experience talking about Helen Keller, uh, your listeners can go over to Radio Lab where I did the Helen Keller exorcism, which is an hour-long episode about Helen Keller's legacy. That's great. And we'll provide a link to that at writersvoice.net. So you first read about uh, Helen Keller when you were in school. And talk a little bit about your school experience. You were so-called mainstreamed. Was that a correct decision for you? What was your experience in school? My experience in school was pretty challenging because I was mainstreamed, I experienced a lot of bullying. I experienced a lot of teachers not really knowing how to teach me. And I experienced a lot of being the only disabled person in the room for most of my schooling. Um, and that's all really hard. And it also meant that I didn't learn some of the skills and techniques that my fellow blind and deaf people learned as children. And do I think it was the right decision? I might have been. Do I think that I should have received some of that educational content, like learning sign language and learning ASL, uh, learning ASL and learning Braille? Absolutely, I do. But I think that mainstreaming is actually the thing that needs to change. Disabled kids should be mainstreamed with non-disabled kids because non-disabled kids often don't interact with disabled people because they've been shuttled away. So. And do I wish I'd gone to a school for the blind or school for the deaf? Sometimes I do. But I think what I wish more was that I had exposure to other disabled kids and to disabled experiences and skills. 
And Elsa Hunnison, in Being Seen, you have a powerful uh, discussion about sex, ableism, and being a disabled woman. You say that disability is different for a woman than it is for a man, and that the performance of disability is intrinsically linked to our performance of gender. What do you mean by that? So Judith Butler in Gender Trouble, Trouble lays out a concept for how we perform gender. And they talk about how our performance of gender is literally that. It's a performance. We put on costumes. We put on gender. We come up with the performance that makes sense for us. And that gender performance can change. And it's the same for disability. Disabled people are told what their disability is supposed to look like. And so from time to time, you will put on different versions of your disability to accommodate for that. I have definitely worn sunglasses in situations where I knew it would be safer with my white cane than wearing my clear glasses that I can see through all the time. Your disability performance is about safety, and that is more so true for women than for men. In our society, men are less prone to violence on the street than women are, and that is where most of that disability performance happens. And so for women, it's definitely important to pay attention to what form of disability makes you least vulnerable and what form of disability makes you more vulnerable. You have a shocking statistic. You say that 83, 83% of disabled women will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime in some form and are also more likely to experience intimate partner violence. I mean, my mouth just dropped open at that. It's true. And 40% of that 83% will be assaulted more than once. Why? Well, I believe it's because of that vulnerability that non-disabled people see in disabled women, and they believe that they can take advantage of disabled women. And not just that, but they believe that they can silence disabled women from speaking and make it so that they are not believed when something has happened to them. I've seen it happen time and time again, and it's one of the reasons why it's so important for people to learn to take disabled people seriously to listen to what's happened to us and to take it seriously and take, make account of it. And it's happened to you. I I try not to talk about it too much. Um, but what I, I will say is that it's really important to me that people believe disabled women when they say that something has happened to them and to not suggest that they misheard or didn't understand what was happening to their own bodies. Because we are able to be a reliable witness for what has happened to us. And being told that we don't know because of our disabilities is an unacceptable excuse. It's like, I believe her on steroids. Yeah. Yeah. Ever more important. You know, I wanted to ask you, um, we are likely to have a tsunami of disability linked to long COVID. And I wonder if you've had any thoughts about that. I mean, all of a sudden, millions more Americans are going to face being disabled. Yes. I've been really concerned about the rise of long COVID and how it's affecting people, and specifically how so much of our society is behaving like the pandemic is over. COVID is still out there. It is still affecting people. There are still disabled people who are isolating because of their disabilities, and they need to stay safe. 
And so I think the two things that I would say are one, that if you are experiencing long COVID, the disability community is actually there to help you and figure out, help you figure out what resources you need. We've been doing this for a long time and we know how to fight the medical system to get the care that we deserve. And the other thing that I would say is that non-disabled people need to take a good hard look at the choices that they're making. And what I mean by that is I see a lot of non-disabled people who don't know anyone who's disabled who have just chosen to not mask on airplanes, as an example. Airplanes are one of the more dangerous places to be, and yet people just sort of are waving their hands and saying, well, the pandemic's over. So listen to the disabled people who are saying the pandemic isn't over. Wear a mask. Ask people if they've been tested, if they're sick. Don't go hang out with people if they're sick. Don't go be places if you're sick. The time is not now to be cavalier with other people's health. And finally, I want to ask you about policy. Um, you know, one of the uh, one of the people who got elected on November eighth is Summer Lee, who won in Pennsylvania. And I went to her her platform page, and she has disability justice right at the top of her issues page. She says all policy all policy making must be rooted in a disability justice framework which recognizes it as inextricable from racial, gender, and economic justice. And she says we have to work in solidarity across categories to build towards collective access. What do you see are some of the most important policies that that we need to have in order to achieve disability justice? Uh, well, we need to start with health care. Healthcare should be universal. It should not be privatized. And insurance should not be allowed to make decisions that are discriminatory toward disabled people. Right now, hearing aids aren't covered by insurance. Right now, it's possible for your insurance company to deny you a life-saving medical procedure. And none of that is acceptable. So those policies need to change. But we also need marriage equality for disabled people. Right now, in the United States, if you are a recipient of Social Security or Medicaid, you are unable to marry your partner because if your partner makes enough money, they their financial status will disqualify you from that support. Medicaid is in some ways the only ways that disabled people are able to be supported fully by the medical system. So asking people to give up their relationships in order to receive adequate care is unacceptable. This is the next step in marriage equality. And finally, it is about education. Education still isn't fully accessible, and so we need to be working toward creating spaces where disabled kids can learn alongside non-disabled kids. We need to stop acting like separate classrooms is an equal playing field, because it's not. It's not an equal playing field if you've never met another, dis another a disabled person until you're in high school or college. So we need to really change the way that we allow p disabled people into society that's really where we're at. Disabled people deserve to be living in the public square. Well, it's a terrific book, Being Seen, One Deafblind Woman's Fight to End Ableism. Elsa Hunnison, it's really been a privilege to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. Elsa Hunnison. Go to writersvoice.net for a link to her Radiolab exorcism of Helen Keller and to read or listen to an excerpt from her book, Being Seen. Next up, training yourself to sleep. Stay tuned after the break. <laughs> 
Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Do you have trouble getting to sleep? Or do you nod off easily at bedtime, but then wake up in the early hours of the morning to toss and turn? Americans have a sleep problem, and more of them are turning to sleep podcasts to help them slip off to dreamland and stay there. Many of them, including myself, have found their way to Nothing Much Happens, the hugely popular podcast by my guest, Catherine Nikolai. On her podcast, she reads stories that promote a comforting kind of mindfulness, like the one called Holiday at Weathervane Farm. It's a story about hayrides through snowy fields, the ducks waddling back from a day at the pond, and a new calf born who will only ever know kindness. The podcast Nothing Much Happens was so successful, Nikolai collected some of the stories into a book of the same title. Like the podcast, the book gently trains the brain to fall and stay asleep. It also includes tips for mindfulness when we're awake. Before becoming a full-time podcaster and writer, Catherine Nikolai was a yoga and meditation teacher. Catherine Nikolai, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thanks so much for having me. I love this book, Nothing Much Happens, but I knew I was going to love it because I discovered you through your podcast of the same name, your very successful podcast, Nothing Much Happens. Um, How and why did you start a podcast like this? And tell us what it's about. I've always told myself bedtime stories to fall asleep. It's probably one of my earliest memories. And because I've done that, I I feel like I have this rare modern superpower, which is that I can go to sleep (laughs) and I can return to sleep if I wake in the middle of the night because I've sort of trained myself to respond to this concept of like gentle storytelling. I taught yoga for many years. It was my full-time job for about 20 years. And I would talk to so many students every day and also hear from my friends and family just how many people were struggling to sleep, struggling with anxiety at bedtime. And I kept thinking, I know how to do this. How do I get this from me to you? And at first, I very much hoped it would be a book. But, you know, being sort of a lay person with no context in publishing, it seemed just impossible. So I kind of put it on the shelf. And um, then one night, ironically, I was up in the middle of the night um, because I had a sick dog. And I remember sitting on the floor with my beagle in my lap and going, oh, it's a podcast. Oh, I can I can actually use my voice and I can speak to people and help them be eased to sleep. So the podcast came first. And then I was lucky enough after about a year and a half um, to create the book, which has now been published in 30-some countries. And I'm not surprised because we have an insomnia epidemic, don't we? Yeah, we do. It's a really big problem. You know, when I first started, I thought I was doing something kind of niche. And then the more I did it, the more I realized, no, this is completely universal. Everybody will, at some point in their life, experience this. Um, and some people will experience it chronically. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty big problem and I don't think the world's going to suddenly get softer. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's something that we're going to need tools for just forever. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, 
A lot of people use medication for insomnia, but that's problematic for several reasons. I mean, for one thing, it doesn't really give totally restful sleep, and it can also become quite uh, habituating so that people then can't really get off it. I used to have insomnia too, and I was a social worker at one time, so I was able to get trained in something called CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, uh, which trains the mind as well, does take that same approach. And I think you do that kind of an approach, or you you, you fall within the same premise of it extraordinarily successfully. So how do you train a brain to fall asleep? Well, basically, I'm going to talk a little bit about different brain states or um, what we might call um, modes that have to do with your brain activity. But it's it's really easy to understand. I, I, I don't have, I'm in no way a neuroscientist, but this stuff has always been really fascinating to me as a yoga teacher. So I studied a lot about it while I was teaching. Um, so when we're struggling to fall asleep and particularly when we wake up in the middle of the night and we sort of feel the wheels turning, we are often in what's called the default mode network. And in your default mode, you're basically experiencing your, the static of your brain, the background noise, what your brain does when it doesn't have a job to do. Um, And you might have had this experience before where you're reading a book in bed and you're in a really uncomfortable position even, um, but your eyes are just moving through the words and you can't keep your eyes open and you maybe even like keep dropping your book on your face. And then finally you close the book and you turn off the light and you get as comfortable as you can be and then you can't fall asleep. And what shifted in that moment is that you went from the task positive network of your brain, which means that you had a job to do. Um, Even if your brain wasn't doing it super effectively, because often in those moments, you don't remember the next day, the thing that you read, but your eyes were moving over the words and your brain was following along. And then when you got all comfortable, you slipped back into your default mode, which again is what your brain does when it doesn't have a job to do. And um, that capacity for falling asleep vanished in that brief window. So by either using the podcast or giving people tools in the book, we're kind of training people to put their brains deliberately into the task positive mode. And again, the job doesn't have to be complicated. I sometimes think about it like if you've ever babysat like a three-year-old and at some point you say, um, come over here and um, color these flowers for me. <laughs> I really need you to put these blocks in a row for me. It's not about proficiency. It's just about an activity that occupies. Um, And I think that if the activity can be pleasant and full of sensory details, um, it's going to be even more effective because it incorporates mindfulness. And also because it's something that you look forward to. I think when we look at habit building, we can only make ourselves do stuff we don't like for so long. So when we're looking at habit building around sleep hygiene, if it can be pleasant, something you look forward to, you're going to be so much more likely to do it. Um, So those are the major arenas I work in is thinking about how can I shift your brain mode, give it something um, pleasant to focus on, and uh, how can I make it something that you'll want to come back and do again tomorrow? 
Yeah, in other words, you're you're occupying your mind so that it can't get into that place where it can wind itself up with thinking, thinking, yeah. thinking. Exactly. We're giving it a subtle, soft job to do. And that way it doesn't wander away and get into trouble. Yeah. And, you know, I think what's so great about your podcast, you know, I kind of d- discovered, you know, a lot of people use podcasts to fall asleep. And, and I was doing that too. You know, I was just taking my regular podcasts and turning them down really, really low so I could just about hear what was being said and it would usually put me to sleep. But sometimes it would also wake me up because it was actually talking about things <laughs> that were alerting me. Yeah. And and yours, um, and, and there are also other podcasts like yours that use stories, but I never found them particularly satisfying, either because maybe the voice was irritating or more likely mm-hmm. because the stories themselves were kind of irritating. They were too boring in a way mm. to catch my attention in a positive way. Yeah. Your stories are very different. You really strike a balance between a kind of positive, pleasurable story that you want to follow along with while still being soothed enough to fall asleep. And they also express a point of view that's uplifting. Um, you mentioned mind- mindfulness before. Talk about the role that mindfulness plays in your stories. Right. Well, you know, as a yoga teacher, I feel like I studied for so long and taught for so long about how can I bring people into their bodies, into the present moment. And when it came time to work on the book, especially, um, you know, at first it was suggested maybe that I would write a book about meditation. And I thought, do we really need like one more book? <laughs> to tell us how to meditate. And I thought, I don't want to teach people to meditate. I want to just make them mindful in a way that doesn't feel didactic didactic at all, um, but just feels um, like they're, they're doing it and they don't even know that they're doing it. And that's a really nice bit of feedback that I get from a lot of listeners is that they realize that listening to the stories makes them more mindful the next day as they're moving through their world. Because I do mention so much Um, sensory detail. I make it such a point to notice how things smell and look and taste and feel. Um, Of course, all of that puts us in our body, which is a naturally sort of calming, soothing way to shut down an anxious response. So it's very deliberate. I'm glad that, that you can feel that as a listener that, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I guess I just want to listen to something boring. Somebody could read me the phone book. And I think, no, you deserve better than that. (laughs) You deserve to feel safe and calm and have this sort of very gentle teaching happen at the same time where you don't feel like you're being lectured and you don't have a chore to do at the end of it. But it just helps reframe the way you look at things. Yeah. And I like the way you call yourself an architect of cozy. It's not meditation. It's not, you know, something that you have to put effort into. Cozy in itself is a word that's evocative uh, of something that's soothing and comforting. So what do you mean when you call yourself an architect of cozy? That I am trying to construct and create these little bubbles that people can step into and, um, and feel safe and feel relaxed. I, I realize that I use the word safe a lot. And I think that that was a big part of how I told stories for myself 
Uh, I grew up in Flint, Michigan in the 80s, and we hear a lot about Flint today, but uh, Flint was already a, a tricky place to grow up in. And I love Flint. And I'm a big supporter of Flint, but I acknowledge that I probably didn't feel safe as a little kid and that there was probably something adaptive about the way that I told myself stories. Um, and oftentimes when I'm reading books or listening to things before bed, I can feel that exhilaration or excitement of somebody else's story. And I love that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong reader, but I often can't disconnect from the emotion in the book or the thing I'm listening to. And so I thought other people might experience this too, and they need to have someone build them a little world that feels safe and cozy all the time. And I thought, oh, I'll do that. <laughs> and this world is the village of nothing much. Uh, describe it to us a little bit. And also the other kind of extra, I mean, you do encourage people to engage with the stories, particularly if they have a problem that I have, which is I get to sleep very easily, but then four hours later I wake up and that's when it's hard to get back to sleep. So what is the technique that you encourage people to use with these stories and with the village of nothing much? Right. You know, I realized as I was writing that I was thinking of all these things, all these stories happening in the same world. And eventually I realized it was this little village that I was, it's definitely sort of a fan, fantasy village for most people that would kind of dream about a small town where people are very thoughtful and caring. And there's a lot of exciting but safe things to do. And, um, you know, there's a wonderful bakery and there's parks and sort of all those things that I didn't grow up with when I grew up in Flint, Michigan. But so that's part of it is that this is all a little world that I want the reader to sort of step into and think of themselves in the story. I'm very careful about the way that I represent, for example, relationships in the story. If there's ever a romantic relationship, I don't use any pronouns so that um, whoever you are and however you think of yourself in relationship to somebody else, you can imagine yourself in the story um, so that it can just be very inclusive. Um, and I also recommend that people, if they do wake in the middle of the night, first, if they need to listen again, don't hesitate. I think the big mistake people make is that they lay awake for too long and they let their engine rev too hard. Um, give it a try to think your way back through the story. If you were awake for any of it, if you remember any of it, often that simple shift of thinking back through, oh yeah, it started, um, we were out for a walk, you know, so-and-so, often that little shift will be enough to put people back to sleep. But if it doesn't work within a few minutes, just turn it back on. And the important thing is that, is that they sleep, they sleep. And I have to say it works. I mean, I'm out like light yeah. within 60 yeah. seconds. <laughs> if you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Catherine Nikolai about her book, Nothing Much Happens, Cozy and Calming Stories to Soothe Your Mind and Help You Sleep. It comes from her podcast of that name, Nothing Much Happens. Now, one of the things that you can do in this book is you can add some fun things, and which you have done. You have little notes about recipes, suggestions for organizing your house, restorative yoga instructions, and they, they're set between the stories and tend to relate to them. Um, one of them is three good things, which I, I really love. 
and uh, plan to use. Tell us about three good things. You know, that was a tool I used a lot as a yoga teacher that we would often, as a way to kind of prime the pump of gratitude, um, would just be to go back through the last 24 hours and come up with three good things, either that happened to you or maybe that just that you witnessed. Maybe you saw someone being kind to someone else. It could be something very small, very simple. Um, but I often noticed, and a lot of students affirm this, is that once you got in the habit of looking, uh, you started to see them everywhere. And uh, it naturally sort of shifted you into this more optimistic um, viewpoint. So that's a habit I've had for a long time, a good way to start or end the day, just to look for a few good things. And, you know, people often say to me, are you going to, I'm about to be five years into the podcast. Are you worried you're going to run out of stories to write? And I say, no, because I've primed that pump so well over the years. I see so many good things everywhere I look. I sometimes wonder if the universe is conspiring to show me things because my whole life, beautiful things have happened in front of me. Um, and so I feel like I get to then just be the conduit and tell other people about them. And then they tell me, oh, and then I noticed this. And then I realized that. So I think that um, it can just help turn the tide a little. Oh, that's lovely. And tell us one of those really good things that has happened for you. I used to live in Italy. I was a foreign exchange student. And this this is sort of a one of those core memories, you know, they talk about where that you hold on to your whole life. I was 16, maybe 17. I'd learned to speak Italian pretty quickly. And um, one night I was walking through a beautiful piazza in Firenze in Florence. And um uh, there was a beautiful Vespa, <laughs> like a bright cherry red Vespa, vintage Vespa sitting on the cobblestones. And um, I just stopped to look at it. And this guy stepped out of a coffee shop and said, oh, please don't touch it. And I said, I won't touch it. It's just beautiful. And um, he said, do you want to go for a ride? And he gave me the keys and let me ride, <laughs> drive his Vespa. <laughs> and I said, please don't touch it. But here are the keys. Take it for a ride. <laughs> Yeah, this vintage Vespa that I'm 16 and I'm driving in Italy, that's a big moment. But like even today out on my walk with my dog, you know, I see all these little moments where someone is kind to someone else or someone is walking and reaches out to hold the hand of their partner. And I find like those moments happening everywhere. I, I think also my, I've dialed my radar to them. But um, I, I think, you know, when we get into sort of that I call it the everything sucks train. When you get on the everything sucks train, <laughs> it seems like everything sucks. And I get it. It's a really difficult world. I feel that too. Um, but I think that there are uh, a million beautiful moments unfolding around us and we deserve to enjoy them just like we have to feel the hard stuff too. Oh, just just you saying that made me feel good. Okay. I'm glad. <laughs> You have also another page about 10 ideas for simple acts of kindness. And one of them is to, quote, tend to your own well-being. And you call that the highest form of charity. Why is tending to your own well-being the highest form of charity? Um, I think that taking care of ourselves is often um, underappreciated. I was actually thinking about this on my walk today, thinking about how we sometimes um, 
how should I explain this? We sometimes glorify giving ourselves away, losing ourselves in the service of others. And I get that as an empathic person, as a person sort of orientated toward service myself. Um, but I think that's, in the end, a harmful thing to teach our children and to teach each other. Um, caring for ourselves is a way to show others that they're valuable too. Um, and we deserve it. I feel like so much of what we do, we might feel like, if it's just for me, it doesn't matter. If it's just for me, why should I do it? Um, and I want to be a voice that says, because you deserve it. You too deserve to feel good. You too deserve to feel safe. And you'll certainly bring a whole lot more kindness and empathy and positive action to the world when you do. Um, so I feel like once you tend to yourself, you're so much more able to help the world. And also you just deserve it. Right, right. I like I like putting the two of them together. It's it's not yeah. just charity for others, but charity. For, we are all one, basically. Yes, yeah. And I don't think you can cut yourself out of that compassion. It was something I used to say when I would teach loving kindness meditation: is that if your loving kindness does not include you, it is neither loving nor kind. And I think maybe we've all had those interactions with people who tell us that they love us, but they don't. They clearly don't love themselves. Um, and so that doesn't really feel like a very um, true thing to say when someone who doesn't love themselves tells you that they love you. Because what does that, how does that work? What does that mean? Uh, why are they excluded? And will you be too? Um, so I often find that the people who I see in my life who really do love and care for themselves, when they shine their light on me, it is so warm and bright. And that's the light I want to shine on other people. Mm. And finally, I think you've touched on this, but I want to ask you a little bit more about it. Um, you write that all the stories I've made ha have made me a little better, a little wiser, a little more understanding, and never less open-hearted. Talk about the process of having, now it's five years in, doing these stories and what it's taught you. It definitely teaches me to not limit myself. You know, for years, I never wrote. It was the goal and dream of my life when I was eight years old to be a writer and write a book. And I never wrote until my late 30s because I was so sure that I had nothing to say that anybody would want to hear and that I wouldn't be good enough. And then I had this moment, which I call my reckoning of mediocrity, <laughs> where in my mid to late 30s, I went, well, who cares? Like, so what? If it gives me pleasure and I enjoy it, how can, what's wrong with that? Why does it not being perfect mean that it can't still be valuable? Um, so being a writer for this many years now, and this is now my full-time job, it's taught me to not limit myself in my thinking that all of us are probably thinking the same thing when we branch out to try something we want to do that we're not good enough that nobody wants to hear it or see it. Um, but that's simply not true. <laughs> that's some bad programming that we picked up along the way. So I feel quite lucky to get to write every day. That's the one thing about the podcast, you know, it comes out weekly. <laughs> I'm writing all the time. 
Um, and it's made me a much more creative person. I always thought I didn't have that. I always thought I was artist adjacent and kind of jealous. All my friends were artists and actors and musicians. And I didn't think I had that. Um, and I realize now that creativity is a practice. You have to practice it and it gets stronger. So true. And you are a beautiful writer. And this is such a beautiful project. And it's it's really been a privilege to talk with you, Catherine Nikolai, about this book, Nothing Much Happens, cozy and calming stories to soothe the mind and help you sleep. Thank you so much. Thank you for your thoughtful questions, Francesca, and I wish you sweet dreams. Catherine Nikolai, go to writersvoice.net for links to her stories and her podcast. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. 